0: Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we continue our conversation with Sashia Liriano. Sashia is a Dominican-American chef who is a chef de cuisine at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, currently the number two restaurant in the city according to Philly Magazine. In part one of the interview, which was released last Monday, Sashia shares about her personal journey into the culinary world, so we recommend starting there for context around this week's conversation. In this week's episode, we bounce around to a wide range of food topics, ranging from recipes to recommendations to food security. Sashia explains what she looks for in a good restaurant and recommends some of her favorite places to eat and shop for groceries in Philadelphia. She also shares about her experience growing up in the Bronx and how that informs her life today, both in and outside of the kitchen. We also dive into an uncomfortable, but important conversation around food insecurity. Not only is food inaccessibility damaging the health of disadvantaged populations, but it's also disrupting the food systems and cultural transitions of many communities. We both took so much away from this conversation and we encourage everyone to reflect on the topics discussed. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Discover More with us and Sashia Liriano. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional
1: dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons. That will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more.
2: So um, not to sound like so militant or anything like that, but just like kindness trickles down, standards also do. So yeah, I just feel like that's kind of how you go from being creative to worrying about the consumer and what they're eating. You think about what your standards are, what you want people to experience and just set it that way.
1: I'm sensing a leadership by example kind of idea of like you're almost mm-hmm. passing down your standards, which then becomes like culture, a way of culture or like conducting yourself. So it's like bringing integrity to a lot of people just by passing those standards down, keeping that attention to detail. And you mentioned a few things of, I guess, things that you would notice at a restaurant that I certainly have never uh, noticed at a restaurant before. So I'm just, I'd like to kind of zoom in there a little bit of like what attributes make up a good restaurant or what things you go in and look for when you're trying to make a judgment around a place that you're eating. Sometimes when you go somewhere, are you able to know that the food won't be good before you actually have the food, like based on what other things are going on in the restaurant or just like, I'm fascinated by the chef's look to going to restaurants. What expertise and or things do you think about? while you're at a place of fine dining, as the consumer rather than the provider?
2: Um, well, I definitely look at quality of ingredients first. Um, I don't just walk into a place and be like, oh, this place is going to be shit you. Because <laughs> that's just not fair, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't go based off of what other people say either because, you know, food is subjective. Uh, believe it or not, it really is. And you can do your best to please somebody, but one person may love the duck, another person may not, but I feel like when I go into a place, I just basically look at are things well seasoned? Is somebody back there actually tasting the food? Number one, because like I said, flavor is very important to me. Are they seasoning things? Well, is the quality of the ingredients? Okay. Um, one example of that would be, I went to this restaurant in on Pastyunk and they had this, uh, What are they called? They look like dried up waffles. I forget, but they're like wafers and they had chicken liver mousse in between them. Right. So chicken liver mousse has pink salt in it, which is what helps it stay bright. Um, And then it will still oxidize. So you scrape the stuff off the top and you throw that out. I went into this restaurant and they literally it seemed like they scraped all the shit off the top. And they put it in there and we're just like, here you go. And that's one thing where I was just like, I couldn't even eat it. And the messed up thing about that is that no one asked me, oh, is everything okay? I just left it alone. I was just like, you know what? Let me order something else. And then I ordered their gnocchi, which had a ton of stabilizer and texturally, it wasn't good. It was kind of like eating hot mozzarella balls. It was very weird. Um, And then they also sent it out without truffles. So that shows me that number one, front of the house doesn't care about what's going on with the customer. They just literally want to drop a check, call it a day. You're not asking me why I didn't eat anything or if everything was okay. Then it shows me that in the kitchen, there's no one tasting things to make sure that things aren't oxidized. There's probably some uh, Joe Schmo back there who just started cooking a year ago and doesn't understand that you can't send out oxidized chicken liver mousse right so pretty much it's like that's kind of like you just tell like when a restaurant isn't run well you can tell by all aspects you know this restaurant the chef is well known but the food fucking sucked you know what I'm saying like and that's not me being competitive or anything like that because like I said I walk into restaurants and I just want to have a good experience obviously I'm spending my money there so Obviously I want to be there. I don't go in there to just be like, yeah, I'm gonna throw money at them and whatever. Cause you're a chef, you don't have money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Eating out is such a luxury. Um, so I think that that's one of the things you just like, you can tell, you walk into somewhere, you can tell by the service, by the first way that somebody treats you, what kind of service you're about to get. The way that your host greets you at the door tells you a lot about how your experience is about to go.
0: Uh, thank you for the baton of knowledge, because I think once the listeners are able to listen to this episode, they now have a whole new lens of criteria that they get use of. Obviously, we don't have that professional lens that you do, but I knew the few things you mentioned, but I didn't have that encompassing list. So now when I do go into a restaurant, because like I said, I want to get my money worth, period. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to spend $50 in Italian restaurants, I want to make sure it's $50 worth of food. Not just the food right. but it's experience like what makes food a story Quality. yeah right like what makes food an avenue of storytelling it's not just the looks or the flavor it's everything you truly feel it like it brings you back those memories or like why do michelin grade restaurants cost 250 dollars per meal sure food is sensational but it's the service it's the ambience it's the aesthetics, it's the, it's everything right so i think that's awesome So uh, with that being said, since you are the chef de cuisine at this restaurant, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and because like right now, I'm curious to see more specifics, because like how do you yourself as the head chef, you're already the pinnacle of your restaurant. There is no more higher up you can go to besides the ownership. How do you refine your refinement process? How do you refine your craftsmanship? Because as a line cook or sous chef, you can obviously learn from chef de cuisine, or you can learn from the chef that's above you. You can read books. I know you read a lot and I know you do a lot of experimentations and I know we already talked about the balancing acts between creation and consumption. Uh, this is my personal curiosity and this is like my nerdy side cause I just love food. Like, how do you deal with like the golden ratio between acidity, the fat, the protein, or how do you uh, look for avenues to just get better as the head chef already? Cause there's nowhere else to go. Cause you're the top. Kind of
2: like bettering yourself. Like for example, I told myself, even though occasionally I do have a cigarette, I know that's horrible, COVID and all the things, but sometimes you just need a cigarette. So I think that one of the things is like, for me, I quit smoking so that I could be a better chef because I know it was affecting my palate and it does. Um, When you smoke, you cook saltier, right? But one of the avenues to be better, even though you know some people would say I'm I'm at the top or you know I don't need guidance, I think is ha- working in an inclusive kitchen. You know what I mean? Because um, going back to the mental masturbation thing where you think that you know you've been working on this idea you're like oh yeah i'm doing i know how to ferment so i'm gonna have something fermented i'm gonna also have something pickled on there i'm also gonna vide this and you know it's all these things like i know how to do this i'm gonna put it all on a plate but then you're like okay sometimes you gotta simplify things and just let let the ingredients do the work you know what i mean but i think an important thing is making Making things inclusive, like before anything goes out to a customer, every single person in the kitchen and all of the servers try everything. We take input from everybody. It doesn't matter. You know, I even ask the porters, like, what do you think about this? And they'll be like, it needs more salt. And I'll be like, okay, it needs more salt. Understanding that, you know, everyone knows what good food tastes like. Having an inclusive kitchen where everybody's able to put their input in and say, listen, this isn't that good. It's okay." And I've had the cooks aren't scared to tell me like, slash, this isn't very good. You know what I mean? And I think that's what builds a great menu is just having an inclusive kitchen where everybody feels confident enough. And not scared to be like, hey, chef, yeah, this isn't that good or I don't like this or the texture is messed up or the flavors aren't right, you know. So it's kind of hard to get used to that idea of having everybody because I used to get all pouty and be like, why do I need to have, you know, there's always this beef between back of the house and front of the house. And uh, Chad would always be like, have the servers taste it. And I'm like, oh God, servers, do they matter? They don't cook, but they do matter. First of all, like, you know, they deal directly with the customers so they know, you know, how people are eating. I like to sit at the bar, you know, back in the day before COVID, uh, sit at the bar and watch people eat your food. If their eyes light up, you know you're doing something right. If you just see them like this, they're eating, you know, you also not everyone's going to have the same reaction. But, you know, you pay attention to those things so that the servers know what's going on, how people are Uh, their feedback and, you know, all the things. So, yeah, it matters. I think making uh, your kitchen inclusive and the restaurant inclusive in all decisions, most decisions, uh, especially when it comes to food, is very important because you can be so full of yourself that you think everything you do is great, that you don't give yourself enough room to grow. And I feel like that's what makes everything, like everybody better, you know? It makes me better to be able to take critique from people
1: who i'm teaching you know yeah definitely no and it almost requires a humility right of like the student's mindset being able to take feedback even from say a server who hasn't cooked a day in their life but really like the humility of still valuing that perspective and i think the real power for me of this idea is like not only is it better for the end customer right taking more experiences together you can kind of you know, have a melting pot of ideas around what's the best for the end consumer, but also internally facing it seems equally advantageous of everyone feels heard, everyone feels that they've inputted, everyone knows the ingredients or like why the dish is the way that it is. It's almost fascinating that it's both externally facing and internally facing and kind of advantageous to both sides. And it makes me curious, is is this a common practice in the restaurant industry? Like is an inclusive kitchen something that's unique to Friday, Saturday, Sunday? What have you seen in the 19 other restaurants or kitchens you've seen in terms of inclusivity within the workplace?
2: I'm trying to look at this list and no.
1: Kind I've never a experienced
2: a place where where your voice is, like it's okay for you to talk about your ideas and say, hey chef, I, I, I was reading something. Like even if you are well-informed even if you have all the ratios the percentages all the things like I've had chefs be like oh you think that's cool yeah yeah go go do it like just kind of tell you to fuck off right um it's very discouraging Mm -hmm. right and it makes you feel like okay well you know I guess I'm not good enough to for my ideas to be heard and I really love the fact that even just this week, one of, two of the line cooks who love each other, Yosti and, and Justy, those are my girthy boys. Um, they are so awesome and they're young, but they're so, they just like, listen, you know, it's, it's easy to teach them and, I get feedback from them all the time. Like Jesse, I ask Jesse all the time, how does it taste? And he's like, it needs more salt. And I'm like, okay. I didn't think it did, but it probably does. But I trust him enough to know that, you know, he knows what we cook like. So maybe I haven't drank enough water or I've been you know, and I might not season something correctly. And I'll be like, Jesse, taste this, right? He feels confident enough to, to be like, yeah, this isn't right. You know what I mean? So um, there's that. And then... Him and uh, Yost were like trying to buy this food truck from Craigslist. It ended up being a scam, but it was kind of funny. I mean, it's sad because it's, you know, maybe they're like, oh, damn, we really wanted to do this. But the fact that people feel confident enough in a kitchen where I work at, where I'm like helping lead people along with Chad, where people feel confident enough to be like, I could venture out on my own. I'm good enough to go go do this, which is something that it took me a long time to get there. You know, and these guys have worked at, I think Jesse's worked at one other restaurant besides Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Tim has worked at two. And it took me 19 restaurants to get to where I'm at mentally to feel, you know, confident enough to feel like, you know, maybe one day I could do my own thing. And I have India Rodriguez doing her own thing, starting her hot sauce line. We're going to do a pop up at Herman's at some point when she gets her nutrition facts right. Uh, the fact that Tim and Yost, you know, wanted to buy a food truck and do their thing, and asked me to help them with food cost stuff. The fact that they feel confident enough to feel like, oh, I don't feel like an asshole. I have to keep this a secret, which is how most, you know, corporations work. Like that, you can't. Oh, you're gonna leave. You can't take recipes from here. You can't. No, take it all. Just don't directly copy it, but take it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just venture out on your own and that's the goal because you can't like to believe that somebody's gonna work for you forever is like such a jerk mentality it's like no you would never be anywhere else besides here like that's just ridiculous and it's just like i've worked at places where friends or where i've been told oh if you quit i'm not giving you a reference like isn't that insane but it's a real thing um, so I think that, yeah, the, the work environment changing and stuff like that is really, like you see it. And that makes me really happy that everybody feels good enough about talking openly about what they want to do with their future. They don't pretend that they're going to be working with you forever. So it's just, it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I don't even know if I answered the question. it's yeah,
1: spot on. I think <laughs> a lot of this stuff you talked about Reminds me of an idea we've talked about with one of our prior guests who was a uh, manager at where Ben used to work. And he introduced the idea of transformational versus transactional relationships. Like I think not just in restaurants, but almost America and like, you know, work culture in general, it's very transactional of, you know, this person works for this person and very like a linear relationship of. One person's doing the work, one person's doing the leadership. But this almost seems transformational, and you're empowering these people to be able to do things on their own, to believe in themselves. And then, thus, A, they have high regards for you if they end up doing their own thing and like creating that relationship down the road. But even if they stay internal, they can show up for you better, right? It's creating like a win win relationship between the two different people. Um, so, I definitely just want to point out kind of the power of that just that transformational dynamic between seemingly an employee-employer relationship, but really how that can benefit both parties.
0: Yeah, well said, uh, Aiden. So I just wanted to make a quick comment on what you said, um, Shashia, about uh, your story with your balancing act. I hear a sense of and the theme of ownership a lot, right? It is it's truly incredible what you can see and what the kitchen culture and the work culture could shift and change and involve. Once you instill a certain level of ownership, which is what you did, you gave the gift of ownership to your line cook, to your servers for them to be not just openly criticize you, but also give you feedback. And you were very receptive towards that. And that's very evident to your personal as a human, but also the characteristics of your leadership. And another two saying and two quotes kept popping in my mind throughout this entire episode for the past near two hours of conversation is that, we don't know what we don't know. Like You don't know yes. what, if someone's cat passed away or if someone's dealing with cancer or if there's a lot of issues that's being in the back burner of their mind because people come to your kitchen to work, right? It is your kitchen. It is a work setting. And then another thing that came to my mind is outside of everything we know is everything we don't know. These two things are very obvious. But if you truly unpack what it means, it's very profound. It is outside of everything we know is everything we don't know. What that means is aside from the persona, aside from the, the conversations you have during your 13-hour workdays about the ingredients, about the platings, about the delivery, if you don't ask about them, you're not gonna have any idea what sort of mental health or what sort of inner realities your team members and your, your chefs are dealing with, unless you ask. But you have this very open and receptive and very almost maternal and nurturing aspect to your feminine energy and your feminine leadership style that encourages that so that you can expand your horizon of what you know. Because the more you know, the less you don't know, right? Especially with the culture that you're trying to cultivate along with chat. So I just wanna make that comment because it's very evident, the sort of feminine leadership that shines through and which makes your kitchen amazing.
2: Um, I just wanna say one thing before we move on to um, any other questions. I wasn't always uh, this kind of person, like, I've had people walk into kitchens and be like, oh, she's the chef here. No, 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 I, I don't want to work here because I was such a little bitch before. Um, and that's because I had leaders who were teaching me to be mean and uh, not mean necessarily, but like to be so stern when you don't care about this person has a sick kid and they can't make it to work. And now I have, they're like, Sash, go fire them or Sash, uh, go tell them that they move too slow. You know, like treat people like machines, you know. Um, and although there is a, a need for, you know, for people to work in a in a accelerated manner in restaurants, um, like I feel like a lot of it gets lost in like just treating people with humility and like letting people be human. Um, but I definitely wasn't always like this. It was definitely a journey to get here. So I don't want to pretend that I've always been like this because I wasn't. I was definitely a nightmare at some point in my life uh, as like my first management jobs and stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. And it, but it's clear you're kind of taking on those lessons and embodying that transition. I think, you know, everyone goes through a bit of a process in terms of learning those lessons. And it's clear that kind of the lessons that you learn from leadership above you is allowing to inform, uh, the type of leadership lessons you're passing down. Right. We almost become our environments in a lot of ways, which I think your story really speaks to elegantly. And one of the places that I'd like to go next in terms of topics is a bit more food centric. Uh, Specifically, I'm fascinated with nutrition and its relationship with public health, just like the food industry as a whole. You mentioned the importance of food quality as well as food costing in relation to helping out with the food truck. But what big ideas do you think about when it comes to food quality specifically? around the food industry as a whole, right? Kind of like paying top dollar for higher quality ingredients versus not to say where to cut costs, but like how to balance the way that obviously higher quality food costs more money in terms of like the restaurant management lens, just big ideas around food quality and the food system as a whole.
2: Uh, Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I feel like in terms of balance balancing food costs and labor costs and all of those things i think that you know you cut costs where it doesn't really matter it doesn't make a difference or i want to say i think that some of the best meals that i've had have been the most simplest of foods when you're able to do less labor and uh just focus more on giving people what it's supposed to give like Uh, you have uh, a dessert and you have three ingredients on there, but they're all so well executed that you don't have to have somebody in the kitchen prepping for two hours for this one dish. You know what I'm saying? So I think that some of the food costs comes to that point. Like, you know, I feel like you become the best chef when you're able to keep things simple and not do so many things on one plate And just be able to still provide that experience that you want to do, even by having all those different things on one dish. I think that there's a lot of food insecurity in the U.S. I mean, everywhere, really. Um, I think that a lot of people don't understand how privileged we are to have vegetables. Even be able to execute vegetables well in a way that people want to to eat them. But I, I used to do volunteer work at these places in Roxborough. Um, and then I went to a school and I taught like urban communities, how to, um, use vegetables, grow their own vegetables, and then how to cook them and enjoy them, you know? And it's something that, you know, me growing up in the Bronx, I was lucky enough to have a mom who would cook a meal, fresh meal for me every day, you know, because, we're first generation Dominican. So we would just eat Dominican food all the time. But a lot of my friends and a lot of things that they, a lot of my friends would eat like canned foods, which are very high in sodium um, and just don't have a lot of nutritional value. And I think that being able to make that accessible for for everyone is very important. And um, I've worked with uh, chef's food. You grew up eating the canned foods. You grew up eating instant pasta or whatever it is, you know? Um, so maybe your palate, it's not your fault. Your palate isn't like that, but I feel like it, your upbringing says a lot about the way that you cook. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I'm almost hearing a accessibility of both physical, obviously having the vegetables themselves, like the obvious accessibility, But the point that you just made is like accessibility of knowledge, right? Like even if we dropped off a hundred pounds of broccoli in North Philly, who knows what they'd be able to do with it, right? There's still the physical accessibility and the education accessibility, which I think that program you mentioned definitely speaks to. And one of the ideas that I've been thinking a lot about, specifically in terms of food insecurity, is I almost feel that food represents the ultimate duality in terms of, for me, I haven't have seen anything bring people together more than food, but also mm. drive people apart more than food, like in terms of food inequalities and how different, how much of a significant role food insecurity plays, like it almost widens all gaps, widens the economic gap, widens the racial gaps of just if... I was existing on McDonald's and Burger King for most of my childhood. I would not be the person that I am today, but I'm just really intrigued as to what might come up. You can take it in any which way that you want of either the lens of food bringing together, which a lot of the things we've talked about previously speaks to, but also the idea that we just brought in of food insecurity and that might tie in your Bronx experience, but really the balance of food bringing people together and driving people apart at the same time
2: yeah it is um you know food will bring people together you know obviously families at the dinner tables parents who work and then come home and just have are able to have dinner with their kids before they go to bed but uh, i think with food insecurity i wouldn't say that that's necessarily something i've experienced personally because my parents you know always did their best and not that parents who experience food insecurity like their kids or whatever aren't doing their best, but you work with what you have, what's accessible to you. So I feel like a lot of economic gaps between people is because of food. You spend your life with all these hospital bills and all this stuff, but you think about all the things that have been accessible to you if all you've been able to eat is fast food. And all you've been able to afford is canned foods to feed. Maybe you have three children and you can't afford to feed them all. And you may be a single parent. And now your kid is either obese, pre-diabetic or something like that. You know, like sometimes, you know, you have all these fillers, right? That essentially you think you're doing something good for somebody and then, you realize, okay, I was just harming my kid by giving them all these things, but this is, you know, I did my best. Like, this is what I could afford. And it kind of sucks, but um, I think that people need to be more understanding of that. And a lot of times people are very judgmental on like maybe people's weight, the things that they eat, but sometimes we don't make those choices. Like we we take what's been given to us. And uh, I think that now going, like anytime I go back to the Bronx, If I go to the supermarket with my sister or something, I see now they have kombucha. Uh, They have uh, a lot more fresh produce, organic things. But you have it in a neighborhood that the projects are right across the street. Government housing is right across the street. Um, and there's a lot of gang violence and there's all these things. And it's just like, so you're bringing these things to a place where people can't afford them and they're jacked up prices. Like a bottle of kombucha is nearly $9 in the Bronx. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, here in South Philly, I could get it for what, 5 95 maybe, or $4, you know, depending on what I'm getting, which is just like, okay, so you're bringing these things, but you're not making them accessible. Right. So I see that effort, but there's a wealth gap. So we're not doing anything like, and I think that that's the, the beautiful thing about these little urban farms and things like that, that we see more of now that maybe they have been around, but now people are more aware of them. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's very unfair to bring those things to communities where people can't afford them or like, uh, gentrification definitely takes a toll on every, everybody the way we eat. So, you know, oxtail is now popular with people outside of the Caribbean, right? But now everybody's like, "Oh, I love oxtail." And now oxtail's like almost $20 a pound at some places when it used to be 6.99. I love that meme that says, "Make oxtail cheap again" because <laughs> I understand it. Like, yes, we do need to make oxtail cheap again, but there's just gentrification in the food culture now too. You know, yucca or plantains used to be It used to be 10 for a dollar plantains growing up, you could get plantains 10 for a dollar. Now you buy two plantains and it's just like $2, right? And it's just like, these are staples in specific families and cultures. And now because now people consider plantains part of a paleo diet. So now it's like, oh, paleos love people with money because you can't like, you're not gonna be from the hood and be like, oh, I'm gonna go paleo. (laughs) It's not a thing nothing no matter what you want to do you're not working for your people you're like trying to target this other demographic that's not even around and now there's this food insecurity because of it
1: paleo is a privilege title of your ted Elio, talk
2: paleo is a privilege but that privilege hinders other people
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: you know what i mean because now things that were traditionally inexpensive for people who who some of those ingredients are staples to their diet, staples to their culture, now they're jacked up because it's a trend.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, paleo is a privilege, veganism is a privilege, keto is a privilege. Uh, all- when you're worrying about the next meal, you don't care about cutting out your your meat or anything else. I, obviously, gentrification is obvious with real estate with eviction but I've actually never considered about the cultural gentrification in terms of the food culture and the food security and food poverty, which is really, really profound. And I, f- I feel like that's something I'm gonna be sipping on for, for a while after this interview. So thank you for the awareness. So I think this is a perfect segue to talk about cultural upbringing. And we touched briefly about some aspects to the socioeconomic gap that exists in Bronx. Bronx is the true birth city. And Philadelphia might have rebirthed you in terms of your identity as a chef. So let's talk Bronx for a bit. And I don't know too much about Bronx, but uh, what is Bronx like? What is the Bronx culture? And just tell us anything about Bronx, because I know New York as a whole is prominent for food. And I know a couple of dishes that's unique to Bronx. But I think this is your story to tell. So I think it would be the best for you to walk us through the Bronx culture overall in terms of that's pertinent to your upbringing.
2: I honestly I get why people say you know the Bronx is crazy and there's all these stereotypes about people from there because some of them may be true but I feel like a lot of the ideas are ignorance because people just see rap videos or movies and they talk about the Bronx and whatever but growing up there you know I think there's this like cultural aspect about it that I just love um to be honest in my high school I had one white person that I knew. A lot of the people in the Bronx are minorities. They're either Black, Asian, Hispanic, and some Indian. Um, I honestly, I didn't meet a white person um, until like maybe my senior year of high school. And then I also met another person when my father got me the job at that bakery that I worked at in uh, Long Island City. So there's that, it's kind of like, and then coming to Philly after that, It was just kind of a wake-up call because there's just such a difference in the way that people interact. Um, The thing that I love the most about the way I grew up is that everything just felt like a tight-knit community. Like, you know, if you live in a building, you know most people who live there. In the early stages of my childhood, I lived in Tremont Avenue, which which was a very harsh area. Um, And that's where, like, my parents came from, Dominican Republic, and that's where we lived up until I was, like... 14 or 15 and growing up there i saw a lot of things i i saw people get robbed i had a friend who um growing up had her face sliced from her ear down to her mouth because her brothers uh, were in gangs and then down the street there was a different gang so you see things like that Um, my parents protected me and sheltered me so much from everything and i think that that's why i like seeing the things that happen in the public school systems in new york I mean, at least in those years, like the 90s and things like that, like all the gang violence and, you know, young girls getting uh, pregnant before they were ready for that responsibility. I think that I understand why my parents sheltered me so much, even though I came here to Philadelphia thinking, oh, I need to get away from my parents. I'm so tired of being like in their control or having to sneak around to do everything. So I'm going to go away. Right. I understand why they kept us so sheltered. And I understand all the sacrifices they made, even though they didn't have it like that, to be able to put three girls through private school, all of our, basically all of our lives. Like that is such a privilege being from the Bronx, being first generation American, to be able to go to a private school and to not experience, you know, we all experience trauma, but to not experience that trauma that most of your friends Grew up with because maybe their parents didn't weren't able to handle you know all the things that were overwhelming to them. I'm very grateful and all of my parents weren't perfect they're divorced but um, they did their best and I, I really am so grateful for it because I I've had friends who've had these crazy experiences uh, growing up and like my friend as a kid mind you I was I wasn't even in sixth grade when that happened to her um and it's just crazy seeing that like me i was just excited to play in the dirt (laughs) like i was just excited to do like little things on like maybe race or whatever but you know occasionally you get you know everybody's tough you know everybody gets raised to be a tough person stick up for themselves so i definitely was very spicy growing up like i always stood up for myself and i think that's kind of where my, uh, personality and me being able to stand up for myself in the kitchen has, uh, kind of like come together, like, you know, dealt with a lot of nonsense or like, you know, people being rude to you or wanting to fight or whatever growing up. And you learn to appreciate those experiences. I feel like if anything, being from the Bronx shaped me to be a better person You see all different kinds of people. You don't just, if I was raised in Philadelphia and I had the life that I currently do now where I'm definitely more comfortable financially uh, than my parents were, I feel like I probably would have been a different kind of person, you know, maybe entitled or something else. And I feel like that's, I get my humility from the Bronx. You know, I do because you, you see poverty, you see different kinds of people You know, you you feel like it's normal to have minorities around you. You don't grow up with these crazy biases. Although we all grow up with biases, like I feel like sometimes, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? So we we see it, we ignore it. And then as an adult, you finally decide to acknowledge and you realize, okay, so I was kind of taught this, but I'm going to choose to be different. But I think the Bronx, like growing up there, uh, besides, the, you know, the gang violence and growing up with friends who were in gangs uh, as well, even though we went to Catholic school together, it's crazy. But, you know, it's something that happens. You know, you grow up with your neighborhood kids, your parents try to do their best, but you go your own way. I think it's definitely something that shaped me for the better. Like, I really appreciate being from there. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's definitely been part of uh, what made me who I am today.
0: Yeah, uh, I love your sense of gratitude. And I think your humility and gratitude are both sides of the same coin, right? Because without the gratitude, there wouldn't be humility. But without the humility that came from like the Bronx, that wouldn't be the gratitude. And I think we often talk about the relationship between pain and purpose. It's often the deepest pain that give us the greatest purpose, or greatest lessons, our greatest growth. And that's why we want to view everything in hindsight's lens. And it's awesome that you can even reflect upon those challenging adolescent years in Bronx, although you are personally sheltered from that, but that doesn't take away the traumatic experience. Just from seeing your friends who got her face sliced open as a sixth grader, I can't even imagine what that feels like. And that's not part of my truth. That's not part of my experience. So I really appreciate you sharing that because I could tell the level of adversities that you had to endure to come to Philadelphia. And with that being said, so Philadelphia is a city of fine dining and a city of brotherly love. But most people don't know the former. Obviously, the brotherly love is famous, but most people don't know Philadelphia also is. Um, it's literally the, one of the best cities known in the U.S. Aside from the lack of Michelin grades because of the Michelin star system, that aside. Uh, but why Philadelphia? Because New York is an amazing state that also has amazing encompassing cuisines. You know, L.A., another great city, one of the best fine dining cities in the world. Obviously the cost aside, you could have taken the bus to LA or whatever. I don't know what the situation was, but like, why Philadelphia? What about Philadelphia that called your name from Bronx aside from, Oh, let's leave my parents.
2: Okay. Well, I'm just going to be frank with you. The only reason I came to Philadelphia is because I had two older cousins who, one of them went to Arcadia and the other one to Cabrini college. They were like my older sisters. And you know, my mom was like, you have to go to college. You have to do this. And I was like, OK, well, everybody else went to Philadelphia, so I'm going over there. Well, Pennsylvania, so I'm going over there, too. And that's basically how it, how it started. I mean, I went to see a bunch of culinary schools in New York and all that stuff. Uh, and I was like, I'm not staying in New York. I need to go away. But my mom wanted me to go away. Because that's like a thing, like it's like a thing of pride to be like as a parent. I mean, from my understanding, to be like, oh, yeah, my kid went to go study in Pennsylvania or my kid went to go study in another state or something. You know, I'm not sure if that's the case for everybody, but for my parents, uh, that was a thing. That's really the reason why. And then the only reason I stayed here initially was to hold on to that relationship that I thought was really going to go somewhere. But um, after that relationship was over, I felt like I was doing so well. And I said, you know, this isn't, just because that relationship is over, doesn't mean that I'm gonna give up everything and move back to New York just because that didn't work out. And that's how I ended up in Philly. And I just like kept doing well. I felt like, you know, I was on a roll. Um, So I just kept, kept it moving, you know, and that's why
0: I'm here. Um, So for you, obviously this is a speculation, but just from that, like if you were to open your future restaurants, do you see it in being Philadelphia, the city of rebirth, or do you see back in Bronx or your hometown, New York?
2: That I constantly go back and forth on. Um, I love Philadelphia. I've grown to love it a lot, but I feel like New York is kind of oversaturated. I feel like maybe, you know, it's possible to get lost in the mix um, although I do say, I would say that I, I would be able to distinguish myself in that realm, but it's a possibility that it may be Philadelphia. I just don't know if Philadelphia is ready for what I want to do. Um, what understand it <laughs> simply because, simply because in New York, uh, we have a larger Dominican community, right. And my authentic self wants to cater to, to my culture, right. So if I, like, try to go off and do French food or, like, Italian food or, like, you know, kind of like what I'm doing now, uh, American, new American food, right? Although I do think that what I put out on Friday, Saturday, Sunday is absolutely a reflection of what I love and the things that I do, though very important there. um, I do feel like, I don't know if there would be an audience for Dominican cuisine that's kind of, like, very eclectic. Um, I don't know if people would be open to it and having such a specific type of cuisine um, sometimes doesn't give you the best financial outcome, right? That's why like places that are very specific on their food, like no one's going to be in the mood for Dominican food every day, right? From my understanding, like, you know, we always want variety, right? But if you have a community, a large community of people, then you have your, your people who want to come try that food rather than you trying to convince people, oh, this is good. That's where my debate is, um, even though I feel like people who dine out in Philadelphia are pretty open um, to trying new things from what I've seen. But I don't know. It's still something that I'm trying to figure out, to be honest.
1: Well, in either case of whether it's Philadelphia or New York, I think it's admirable that you're going back to your roots, really kind of embodying that idea of, you know, bringing your full self into the food, but from like a roots perspective as well. So regardless of what location, I think Dominican food sounds fascinating and very aligned with a lot of the things you've talked to us about. I guess in that note, I'm definitely curious around Dominican food because I think I've had it a handful of times, but I still just would love to hear the things that make it unique, any specific recipes or like dishes that you think really stand out from Dominican cuisine, just, you know, you can put your chef's hat on for a little bit if you want, and uh, really just educate us and the people about Dominican cuisine.
2: Well, there's a lot of history in Dominican Republic. We have so many different like influences in our food. It's weird, but we have Chinese Dominicans, we have Lebanese Dominicans. Um, we have obviously African influence. We have Spanish influence based on history and the people who have come there. And it's all very interesting to me because I feel like even though I was saying that Dominican food is so specific and there's, uh, there may not be the audience for it in Philadelphia, there's such a wide range to what you can do. One of my favorite things growing up that my great aunt used to make, rest in peace, was a uh, kipe And I think it's a Lebanese, like, like fried bulgur wheat that is, like, stuffed. It kind of looks like a meatball, but it's a spear shape, and they stuff it with ground beef, or it could be really anything, and then they serve it with a tomato sauce over it, and it's, like, one of those things that is so delicious, Um, but it's Lebanese-Dominican. And then we also have a lot of root vegetables in our cuisine. Um, one of my favorite dishes, it's like the seven meat and root vegetable stew that is called sancocho. And that is literally one of my favorite dishes ever. Um, it's like yuca, taro, boniato, plantains, corn. And then there's oxtail, hen, um, which is weird that we use hen, I know. But um, it's just the most delicious thing. And they just finish it with sour orange. And it's, I just love it so much. There's just so many things. Rice and beans are obviously a staple, but we also have tripe soups and things like that. There's just so many different influences from everywhere. And like, it's so, so broad. Like you can just do so much. And Dominican food is kind of like soul food to me, you know? I mean, soul food is anything that, that makes you feel good, right? So we all have our soul food. It's just, really delicious and, uh, you know, flavors are just all over the place. Like, yeah.
1: I love that. We'll definitely try to link some recipes in the show notes because those are dishes that I had certainly not ever heard of, but sound delicious. I think you definitely made me hungry as you were describing them. <laughs> so um, definitely excited to kind of indulge in that kind of new cuisine. And what you mentioned, a lot of ingredients that I – might not have I've heard of, but I certainly haven't cooked with before or really even bought at a grocery store. So from a chef's perspective, where do you grocery shop? Are you mostly in the like local kind of vibe of like farmer's markets or is there a specific place in Philly that you represent? But I'd love to I see do, what you do in the home.
2: I do like farmer's markets. Um, I find that the best, my favorite places so far, especially in South Philly. Well, I love H-Mart. That's not in South Philly. H-Mart, because they have such a variety of ingredients. Like, they cater to so many different cuisines, I feel like. Even though it's mostly Asian, but, like, there are things that, you know, we share. I love it. And I also love Hong Kong, because they have – is it Hong Kong? Yeah, it is, right, on Washington Avenue, 11th Street. Uh, They have plantains at a decent price. They have oxtail at a decent price. Um, Don't go buy the oxtail, please. Um, Yeah, like they have pork. They have all the things like pig feet, trotters, things like that that you want to use. You can definitely find ingredients that you use in a Dominican household there. And that, that brings me comfort because, I mean, we also have the like Mexican like paisanos and stuff like that mexican supermarkets and stuff like that but i feel like acme is like kind of like where like food insecurity thing like i see it there where you're like plantains are so expensive yuca is expensive and it's just like okay it should not be this expensive but because there are all these fad diets not that no offense to anybody but now that we have all these diets and everybody going gluten-free and you know everything that that i love sometimes is more expensive but at other places and aren't as accessible
0: awesome so um by the time this episode is out we'll be fully vaccinated so let us know if you you know want to host a dinner at your place we'll provide we'll bring the ingredients (laughs) we'll bring the wine we'll bring the whiskey you name it we'll bring it
2: absolutely whiskey whiskey please
0: (laughs) Uh, i'm we both love whiskey especially japanese whiskey uh, but obviously, jokes aside, yeah, that's, there's just so much things. And I think we obviously have uh, listeners and audience all around the world, but we do have a lot of Philadelphia listeners. And I truly believe that this episode is so informative in a very vulnerable way, but also very entertaining way. Because like we talked about, Philadelphia is a city of fine dining. And Philadelphia is comprised of so many foodies. Because food is one of the trifectas that bring people together, like we alluded to over and over again, right? We got food music, and sports. We do think food is the top of the pyramid that has that power of unity. Of course, the food security aside. Um, Sashia, we've talked so much today and we truly appreciate such an encompassing conversation coming from your own vulnerable upbringing with some of the just horrific injustice and sexual harassment you received at workplace. And now the uprising of view as like a phoenix as a, this new amazing professional and currently as a chef de cuisine. And we definitely have enough for the listeners to sip on for a while. So we thought we'd like to, you know, as we're coming to a close with this episode, we want to pitch you with the question that we always ask. So since mentorship has such been an important pillar in your personal and your professional life, and more importantly, now you as a leader of your kitchen, you as a leader of your restaurant at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if you were to open up a mentorship program, what are some of the big pieces of advice that you'd like to instill? to younger aspiring chefs, maybe your own line cooks or just the next generation who one day could achieve what you have done, 13 years of hard work that you've put down, what are some of the big pieces of advice you hope to instill?
2: I think one of the things I just wanna say real quick is uh, anyone who's getting into this industry and wants to, be, wants to be a chef, please make sure that you are passionate about it because if you're not the hard work, the hours, the headaches, is not going to be worth it I just want to say that one of the things personally well some of the things that I personally found that I felt like I wish I would have had and needed the most and I would include in a mentorship program would be telling people to make sure that they build meaningful relationships with people as they come along like not everyone has to be a co-worker or just a boss or whatever like if you see that that someone is being open with you, like just absorb that opportunity and allow yourself to be vulnerable because you can miss out on so many great relationships. Um, And sometimes as a chef, you need somebody to run to and just like, who's just going to listen. For women who want to be chefs specifically, I definitely want to say, don't, uh, be discouraged by the way that, you know, you may be treated or the things that people say to you, or, you know, don't be discouraged by your lack of femininity that's allowed in the kitchen. Don't worry so much about having your emotions in check all the time for men and women. We all feel the same, right? So I would say, you know, women, you know, we don't get to to wear makeup in the kitchen. We don't get to wear jewelry. Uh, We don't get to get our nails done and do all the things that, you know, help us feel good about ourselves. Like there are many things, but those are some of the things that, you know, sometimes I wish I could like be all girly and stuff like that. But, you know, allow yourself to be feminine in other ways, which, you know, comes to like tapping into your motherly instincts or whatever your nurturing instincts. Allow yourself to just be free, keep your integrity up, just make sure that everything that you're doing, you're investing 100% of yourself into so that you can always enjoy the fruits of your labor. You know what I mean? You can always say you put out your best. Um, so that's what I would say to younger cooks. Just if you give your best, you're going to feel good about yourself and you're not going to be, be all weird at work. So
1: We love that. Excellent advice. I feel like it really reaffirms a lot of the ideas that we've talked about today, I think, that idea of human first and feminine leadership, really beginning with the human of the coworker in mind really comes up with that advice as well as what we talked about. So really want to just acknowledge you just for the way you kind of brought us into your life today with this conversation. And then of course, the great food that you're bringing to Philadelphia, kind of as we're beginning to close, we like to pose the question around discovering more. And the idea there is you challenging our audience to discover more about something, as well as a personal challenge from us to you where you're welcome to share with our audience, you don't have to, but what is something in your life that you'd like to discover more about as well?
2: I would personally like to tap more into just continuing to work on mental health. I feel like that literally can be so life altering, getting that in check, and figuring things out, and giving yourself the opportunity. You know, we talk about the sustainability of food, and you know, of fisheries and uh, vegetables, all the things, and farms. But we need to work on like our personal sustainability. Like, how are we going to keep ourselves running? How are we going to like constantly be a better version of ourselves? How are we constantly going to be able to recycle the things that we're doing? And give things back into the world so for me that's something that i i want to constantly work on and i think that if other people work on that too and i know this sounds preachy again but like you get what you give and if you keep giving people kindness then everybody else will be able to experience that as well so I also really would like it if people kind of focused a little bit more on food insecurity as well and, like, gentrification of food systems and all of that. um, Because it's so important to understand poverty and understand why people who aren't financially stable are often uh, challenged when it comes to their health. Um, It's not necessarily their fault we all make our decisions as to what we put in our body but sometimes we're not given those options and that's the truth
0: yeah i like to echo what aiden said really really appreciate and respect the level of vulnerability and authenticity and your own flavor profile and your own umami flavor they brought to this episode (laughs) and but seriously though like on that note obviously you're giving out great advices for future women chefs but i just want to be very explicit about this like what those men chefs did to you is straight up illegal and it's fucked up and i truly hope that these women chefs that you hope to bring up uh, whether it's your own kitchen or the food culture scene in philadelphia like i like to encourage them to of course have your boundaries and follow your own path but like don't take no shit from these men it's illegal like report them like like fuck those men you know it's it's a there's just a lot to talk about. Obviously, this isn't about patriarchy and all that, but I really want to like appreciate what you said and what you share with us is not easy. And we've only known each other for three days. Like right. literally, like it's only been three days, and I feel like the level of colors you brought to this table is amazing. Truly, truly so. So to you know, beautifully conclude this episode, we'd like to give you the floor to of course share about how people can find you, connect with you. To discover some of these amazingly beautifully aesthetic dishes that you're creating and curating at Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And secondly, to provide additional value for Philadelphia consumers, is what are some of the favorite spots you like to recommend for people to check out in this city of Fine Dining?
2: Well, you can follow me on social media um, at Sasha S-A-S-H-I-A underscore Gabrielli, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-I. That's my Instagram Um, and feel free to slide into the DMs with any questions. Um, I'm usually on Instagram all the time if I'm not at work. It's like my other job. Um, And yeah, I'm pretty open as you guys can tell. So yeah, just feel free to ask me anything. And then uh, the restaurants that I really love in Philly, some of my favorite um, are Cadence in Fishtown, I believe. It's really good. It's run by two chefs who I worked with at Fork, Sam and John Nodler. Um, They're husband and wife. They're beautiful people. I don't want to say that I have, like, very close friendship with them, but I like them a lot. They're just really nice people, and, like, their aura is so great. I love their food. It's really great. Um, I'm pretty sure the food that I was cooking, besides it being Eli Culp's at Fork, it was also John Nodler. And Sam was the pastry chef there. If you guys look them up, you'll see all the things that people have written about them. They're great. Another chef that I admire and is a good friend of mine is Chris Kearse. Um, He owns Forsythia in Old City. And that is also really delicious. And I love his food. He used to own Will B-Y-O-B, but then moved to Old City and now has that restaurant down there with a full bar. Cocktails are great. I love it. Um, I really can't have nicer things to say about them. I just love it. And then David's Melewa, that's my spot. One of the guys there calls me Snow Pea Leaf, and I love it. And it's really what brings me back all the time because I love their Snow Pea leaves. That's a really great spot, drunk or sober. So definitely check that out. And then there's a food truck, Burrito Feliz. Um, it's sometimes you got to follow them on Instagram, but they have really great burrito tacos and burritos and all of that. Um, and then for pho and ramen, I like Nam Fung and Terakawa. And then for sandwiches and uh, soups and things like that, I like Stockyard and I like Middle Child. Uh, those are both
1: great that's my list amazing yeah thank you for sharing we will definitely plug your list in the show notes and just provide all of the reference points for our listeners as well as your social media and contact information uh, for their reference if they want to reach out so thank you so much for being on the show today we have a lot to kind of think about unpack i know i'll definitely be reflecting on this conversation for weeks to come so thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah. And to all the listeners out there, as always, truly thank you for joining on this train with us this week. And we hope to see you again and continue to discover more with us next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And it would really appreciate if you have
1: subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.